Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1953 film Shane. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? Doing well, Sam. Uh, Barrett, we've been on a run of Westerns and uh, you had mentioned, I think last week before we recorded, you were like, well, should we, should we do another one or should we move on? And I was like, I really wanted to, you, you had mentioned that it was going to be Shane and I'm like, I haven't seen this, but I really want to see this. So, um, so this was a little gift for me and uh, I was not disappointed um, to start off with. What is your history with this film? Yeah, it's one of those films, uh, Sam, that I would have seen uh, on TV uh, probably when I was in my early teens. And um, I, I, I think my, my main memory of this film is it's almost like a um, it's almost like a visceral or an emotional memory. It was just the, the fact that I felt it was a very sad film. Um, and, and of course, you know, everybody is if you have never seen Shane, you know, the probably the scene of Shane, Shane, come back. Um, and, and that, and, and also I think the Jack Palance character, I mean, those are the kind of the two things that it stuck in my head about, about the film. So, yeah. Well, it's interesting because the only thing that I knew about it um, before this past probably two years was that, that um, closing scene with, uh, with Joey yelling for Shane. And I got to say, if that's the only thing you've seen, I always thought the movie was kind of cheesy because it's like out of context. That's a little rough mm-hmm. um, in the context of the movie. It's great mm-hmm. uh, and heartbreaking, but, but you know, without context, it's just like, I, I don't, I don't know what that is, but it's a little kid yelling and I don't know. Um, now I will say I became more familiar with the, the plot of this um, in the past year, because I was doing a different podcast where we were watching through um, uh, an American anime and they did an episode um that was basically a retelling of Shane um, in Avatar: The Last Airbender, and I was doing this with another uh, colleague, Annie Berglund, and she was she had mentioned, "Oh, this is Shane." So I like I had read a lot about Shane, but I'd never seen it. So that's why I was excited to watch this, and then I went back and watched that episode again. And in fact, they are clearly cribbing from Shane and Pale Rider and mm-hmm. High Plains Drifter and things like that, which are all you know of a piece, kind of to a certain degree. Um, what really interested me about wanting to watch this, though, was that it was directed by George Stevens. Mm-hmm. And I will say uh, in reading uh, Mark Harris's five came back by the time you get to the end of that book, uh, in my mind, Stevens is really the, the heart of that book. His experience is, is pretty heart wrenching um, of the five directors. He's the one who sees the most, especially land combat. Cause there's, you know, you get, you get your uh, William Wyler who's up in planes and seeing real, real stuff um but stevens is embedded with with uh the troops after normandy and goes all the way to the concentration camps Mm um i mean this is somebody who wins two best director oscars for a place in the sun and for giant um and shane is sandwiched between those in 1953 but i think probably the most important film he ever made or films he ever made were the films for the nuremberg trials of, Mm -hmm. of what he saw there and like I remember reading that book and not knowing anything about George Stevens. And I was just thinking, man, I hope this guy's okay. Not even, I hope he goes and makes movies. Like I hope this person is okay. So to then read about him and realize, Oh, he actually like has a great career after this and makes a movie. Like I've never seen a place in the sun or giant, but, um, but this movie's fantastic. And I, I think at the edges, there's, maybe some haunting of some of that stuff mm-hmm. that, that, that he experienced. So I felt really good that George Stevens was okay. Cause when I read that book, I really thought, is this going to be the one who comes back and doesn't actually make anything more and is just kind of damaged by that. 
Well, it did take him a long time to kind of come back. You know, he, uh, I think his first film after the war was either 48 or 49, which is domestic drama. I remember Mama, uh, which is very well received. Um, but it's really, he kind of considers Sheen his, his commentary on, on war and on, on the Holocaust. Um, because, you know, we'll talk about this because of the way the film deals with, with violence um, and just, just at a technical level, you know, the, the way that he had the gunshots recorded by uh, firing into a, um, into, a, into a garbage can to kind of magnify uh, the impact, just the sound of, of, of the gun uh, going off. In fact, I was reading, a, uh, I was reading a, a book about the Western called From Shane to Kill Bill. Um, and a subsection of all those chapters is why does, why does Shane's gun sound like a nuclear bomb? Um, so I think there's a sense in which he is trying to suggest that this kind of relatively small scale violence is the heart of what he saw in World War II. And even it's to a certain degree, the heart of the, of the Holocaust. I mean, you can even read a little bit, maybe overreading it. You can even read a little bit the, the main conflict in, in the film between the, between the ranchers and, 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 and the homesteaders. Um, echoing or repeating a lot of those kinds of historical re- relationships that play out in war. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. And and we're going to dig into a lot of those themes. So I I always organize my notes in different ways. And this this time it was easiest to just organize it around themes because there's sure. there's three or four big conversations I want to mm-hmm. have here. Um, and maybe to introduce some of those themes, but not all of them, is thinking about how well Shane fits in to this conversation we've been having about 1940s and 50s westerns so just to like uh circle back to things we've said before i mean this is a movie that is at its core is about sort of competing views of of the west competing views of america right between uh, and it even it even stops and has conversations about this i i i love how talky this movie is um mm-hmm. you know you have mm-hmm. this right in the middle of the film you have this conversation between riker and starrett about um Mm-hmm. kind of their conception of what the West should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and instead of, instead of showing it, they have a conversation about it. And I, and actually I found that very powerful. So we'll definitely circle back to that. Um, I mean, this is obviously a movie that's um, at a different point of that frontier line between, and I'm saying both of these words in heavy quotes between the wild West and between civilization. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, living at a different point there. I think the role of law is really interested in this because this is a movie, unlike the things we've watched recently, this is a movie with the absence of a lawman, mm-hmm. you know, that they, they keep saying that the closest marshal is a hundred miles away. So, you know, previous movies we've looked at high noon, my darling Clementine, the Rio Bravo, right? Where these are movies about a lawman trying to maybe create or keep some kind of order but this is this kind of predates that we're we're far enough out on the frontier where we don't we don't have that um and then and then as you mentioned sort of the what is the place of violence in the world and especially in this world which where the west is maybe starting to be again everything is in heavy quotes tamed in a kind of way um so so there are lots of different themes that we can we can talk about here but before we get into those um I just have a couple other questions I want to ask. Uh, one of them is about Alan Ladd. Like, like who, who is he? I, I went through his filmography and he's definitely somebody who made a lot of stuff. He was in three, four, five films a year. Um, but I don't really have a, a, a box to put him in. Is he, um, 
is, is he like a staple of Western of Westerns or is he doing a lot of other things as well? Yeah, he's, he did a lot of other things. Um, he, he rose to prominence in films noir, actually. Um, he, was in, he was in three uh, pretty good films with Veronica Lake back in the uh, mid, mid to uh, early to mid 40s. Uh, he's really terrific at this gun for hire, uh, which is kind of a proto noir from 42. And then he was in something called The Glass Key and The Blue, the Blue Dahlia. Um, just, just an aside, one of the reasons why he was a great combo with Veronica Lake is she was one of the few actresses who was shorter than him. Um, uh, she was four foot eleven. In fact, he often he he often did uh, act opposite uh, taller actors or actresses, and he, he was either on a box or or they were in a in a pit. Uh, for example, when he played opposite Sophia Loren, who had at least four inches on him. And, and anyway, so and there was a Python skit about that, about actors standing in boxes or in, in, in pits. Um, but he, so he was fairly popular, Sam, uh, in a variety of genres. And then um, probably his star was at about the highest around the time of Shane. Uh, he had done the first film adaptation of Great Gatsby in 1949, uh, and he was very popular in that. And so in 1951, the uh, Hollywood Foreign Press Association said he was the second most popular film star in the world after after Gregory Peck. Um, so for whatever that's worth, you know, and he was voted one of the most 10 most popular stars in 53, the year that Shane came out. And Shane is kind of the top of it, the top peak of his career. Uh, he puts together his own production company, and but he, he ends up kind of making bad choices. Like he, he keeps turning down really good roles. He turned down the uh, uh, he turned out a key role in uh, James, James Dean's role in Giant, uh, which you mentioned earlier. He turns that down, and of course, it makes James Dean a huge huge star. Uh, he started kind of a comeback, but it was cut short by by his uh, early death. Interesting. Yeah, I, another name that came up uh, in sort of the casting for this is a name that uh, of an actor that I'm, I'm aware of by roles that he's been in, but I don't know that I've ever actually seen a movie in, but he, but he's come up so many times in the what ifs here that it's like, he is like, he is regarded as a great actor whose career was cut short. Um, but is Montgomery Clift? <laughs> he seems like every movie we, we, we watch is like, Oh, that's who they wanted for this. But for some reason or another, he couldn't, and it's not that he's turning, always turning them down. It's other contractual things. So, so he was, uh, he was another name that was, that was, uh, sort of thrown into this. Um, another thing that, that I want to mention, um, and I think this was a conversation we had after the podcast last week, but this is another, uh, Western in color, Rio Bravo's in color, uh, Technicolor. This is Technicolor. Uh, but I will say this feels a lot more muted than Rio Bravo in terms mm-hmm. of the color. I think this movie looks better than Rio Bravo uh, in terms oh, of. Oh, yeah. And yeah. In fact, that was the one Oscar the, the movie uh, won. It, uh, it was nominated for six Oscars and it got the Oscar for. At that time, cinematography was still divided into black and white and color. So it got this best Oscar for color cinematography, and I and I agree the palette is is much more neutral than in Rio Bravo, and uh, and Rio Bravo has very little interest in uh, the scenery, uh, whereas this film is much more like a John Ford western in the sense that he's really interested in I mean that incredible shot of the Grand Teton's Mastiff behind behind the uh, uh, behind the, the town. I mean Stevens doesn't want to waste that, and it almost looks black and white when you get those shots. It's almost like a desaturated color. So I agree. He makes much more use of the landscape, much more interested. And as we talked about in the past, in many Westerns, the landscape is the uh, is one of the characters. And that's certainly the case in this one. Yeah. And and um, 
he does a lot more with with wide shots because of that too, which I think is 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 really effective. This this film was also um, shown in uh, what was at the time experimental widescreen. So a lot of the uh, contemporary reviews talk about you know how they 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 cropped the top of the picture and so they could spread it out over this this pretty ma- much bigger screen than what they would typically have um, at places. But I'm curious when you watched this, what was the aspect ratio? Cause my, I did not have a widescreen aspect. Ratio, no, so. I, yeah, no, I, I had, I had classic Academy ratio and, and I, and I noted that, I mean, the minute it came on, I thought, Oh no, you know, it's a TV box. Um, and I, and I wish I could have seen it in wide in a, in a widescreen ratio. Maybe there's a DVD out there that does that, but not the one I had. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was disappointed because I bet this looked pretty especially to an audience who wasn't used to that ratio i bet it looked pretty amazing um to to see it that way yeah Um, because as as we've mentioned in the past sam this is the point where hollywood is conflicting is coming into uh into competition with tv right and so you want to give audiences something they can't see at home not only in terms of the size but the scope of of the picture absolutely uh let's jump into some of the themes so so the first one that i want to talk about um, because I thought this was was really interesting, and it's something that we haven't seen in, I think, really any of the westerns. Is the the theme about kind of ranchers versus homesteaders mm-hmm. as kind of the, this competing view? And 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 I maybe I'll start with this, which is Riker is clearly the villain of this movie, the, the, but he is painted in a way that is at times genuinely sympathetic in mm-hmm. a kind of way, and I and like. That sort of blew me away because as the movie starts, you hear people talk about Riker. You even meet Riker in the bar, and you're just like, "Well, okay, he's 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 like the he's the guy who's the problem here." But then you get to have some conversations with him, um, and you realize, well, actually, he's open to negotiating with people, and he feels like something has been genuinely taken away from him, and 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 it really is more. It's less about he is this evil figure and more about there are these competing views of, of what, uh, what the West should be. Um, so, I mean, there, there's a point where he says to the, the bartender, you know, he, he almost seems put upon and he's like, I'm, I guess I'm just supposed to take it, you know? And he's like, look at like, like my men are putting their guns away. They're doing, they're kind of following the rules, but I'm, he's sort of so tired of taking it. And, and the thing that, that it is, is that, that he, um, he is a rancher, but now with the, the homestead laws, there are these people that he views as squatters coming in and taking his ranch, the, what he sees as his ranch land and the kind or like, or I should say that like the open range and starting to, and the thing he keeps pointing out is starting to build fences, starting to cordon off. So, so the question is like, is the West this wide open place? Um, he would see for himself, but also like, if, if anybody else wants to wants to um, raise cattle there too, or, or use that range that 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 that's open versus is this something that should be cordoned off and everybody gets their little piece of land um, that we have the, the, that tension is at the core of this and I found that really interesting um, and you know and he talks about being you know one of the people who again heavy quotes who sort of tame the land mm-hmm. um, and and open it up for that. Um, builds a safe uh what he sees as a a safe range and then other people move in and then he also talks about water which struck me because we're living in a world now where water is an important thing and you know and even even in 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 this he says like you've cut off my access to water and now you start to irrigate 
So I don't have water. And it's like, so that was, it made him, it made the villain who remains the villain. It made him sympathetic in a way that I found really interesting. Yeah. And we should, and we should mention Sam that the the plot is loosely based on the um, 1892 Johnson County war in Wyoming uh, which is also the basis for um, a film called The Virginian, as well as maybe the better known, somewhat notorious Heaven's Gate. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's obviously at one level, you look at his argument, you think, really? You know, nobody had this land before you before you came along. Well, and I um, love that Starrett says that, too. Yes, I do, too. And and of course, the the irony is that what he calls taming the land is um, it's, it, it, it's not what the homesteaders call taming the land. So you can tame the land, but only in a certain way. Um, I'll, I'll give you a very silly analogy. Um, my wife and I are great walkers. And so we walk year round. And when we walk around the pond in our neighborhood, uh, when it's uh, 10 below, we don't see any other walkers. And then days like, you know, we've had recently, it goes above, it goes above freezing, everything starts to melt. And you're out there and all of a sudden you see all these people walking with their dogs and you think you got no right to walk here. You weren't walking here when it was 10 below. Why are you walking here now? And to me, that's Riker's perspective, right? You know, I, you, you wouldn't be here if we hadn't quote tamed tame this land. And of course, there's also the idea that, that fences become a kind of uh, kind of metaphor for law and order, right? That, that the homesteaders and their fences, they, they press, presage uh, more civilization coming in. Uh, the law won't only be three days away in a, in, a couple, in a couple of years. And, you know, Riker isn't going to be able to, he basically runs the, he basically runs the town, even though he has no official uh, position. So it, it's interesting that he's a version of civilization, if you want to think about it that way, uh, being threatened by a, a different version of, of, of civilization. Well, what makes it interesting, though, is, is then because in the early part of the movie, it's pretty late in the movie when we get uh, gun violence. I mean, we get some we get some fisticuffs, but 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 and we'll definitely talk about that. But most of the violence is violence against the civilization part of it, right? Violence against fences. Like they, they tear down fences. They trample when they, mm-hmm. when they ride up at the beginning, they trample his garden and the, you mm-hmm. see the horses kind of get tangled up in the little, little fenced off garden. They burn people's crops there. So, so it is that the violence isn't against people. It's against what the people bring. Um, so, so it, there is this sort of distance between, you know, the actual physical violence from human to human, which this is going to eventually come to, but, but at the beginning, you know, the, 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 it's, it's, it's expressed differently. Um, so this view is then, is then contrasted with, uh, with Starrett and the other, uh, the other homesteaders, you know, he, as we said, you know, he points out that, that you didn't find this country empty. Um, and, and, and at uh, Tori's funeral, there is this kind of great speech that Starrett makes and uh, Shane jumps in and, you know, speaks into it as well, which is an interesting thing we can maybe get to thinking about Joe and <laughs> Joe and, and Shane together. Uh, but but Starrett is is putting out this vision of like a town and a church and a school. And these are all things we've heard before. This is my darling Clementine, right? Yep. Building a church and building a school. That's a sign of something. Um, and then somebody else throws in, in a graveyard, right? Because it's like, mm-hmm. this is this is just like how for Riker, the people who came and, and built the range, he says, you know, a lot of those people didn't make it. A lot of those people died. 
there is this sense that well bringing bringing this other sense of civilization there's also going to be deaths that come along with that um yeah. you know as as we as we see uh in this film you know he star it says that um Riker only wants to grow up beef but we want to grow up families mm-hmm. uh you know and then and then there's this moment where they see the 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 one homestead on fire and they talk about how they're all good there's a there's a it struck me there's a bit of george bailey in uh in starring <laughs> you know like like pulling yeah, the community yeah. together and there's a bit yeah. of potter in Riker. yeah yeah that's a that's a that's a great connection um i also think it's interesting that you see these clash of american ideals even like when you say you know they, they want to grow beef versus we're growing families well I mean, Riker does represent a kind of American entrepreneurism, a kind of American adventurous spirit. Uh, and the homesteaders represent a kind of American ideal of domesticity. Uh, and it's interesting that those things exist in such, in such tension. And, 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 and that, I mean, that tension, and of course, Shane, in a sense, is kind of the mediator between those two worlds because he belongs in either world, right? I mean, his counterpart in Riker's world is Wilson. Um, and so Shane is, is has one foot in that in in that uh, camp, but at the same time he has this desire for domesticity and settling down. So, so I think he's a really interesting and conflicted mediating character between those those two. So often in westerns, you know, the gunslinger is one thing or is this thing. So in a sense, with this film, you get to have both your sheriff because Shane is a kind of a sheriff and he's a kind of an outlaw. And he and he sort of and he, to me that's why he is such a fascinating character and why the film keeps working because Shane is a he's I mean he's, he's only got one name that too it's like he's mythical uh, anyway so he's realistic but he's also mythical at the same time well and and, and even the sense that like Shane knows Wilson or no, knows Wilson at least by reputation and there's a sense that Wilson knows Shane by reputation but what I love about this movie is. In other films, there would be a moment where we would learn about Shane's backstory. Either he would tell a story or somebody would come along who would be like, you know who this guy really is, you know, Mm. kind of what you get with Wyatt Earp, where it's like, wait, you're that Wyatt Earp who, you know, who did this or did this. Um, so, so I love that there, there, that, that just doesn't exist. He doesn't say anything about it. Nobody brings any information to it, but you get this sense that like, this isn't the first, this is not the first uh, little town he's rode into. Uh, and if, in the fact that he's aware of Wilson and the fact that he knows he has the skills he has tell you, tells you that like he's coming from somewhere. There's a, there's an earlier chapter of this story. And at the end, there's another chapter to this yeah. story as well. Yeah. Um, and I'm glad that we don't know those things, but we get to mm-hmm. kind of, we're forced to kind of imagine those. This actually leads, leads great into conversation about violence in this movie um because mm-hmm. i because this movie at its core it, that's one of the things that it's about and I, I think you're right i think this makes sense for stevens to be coming back from the second world war and seeing the really the horrors of war and um you know and, and we get some competing understandings of violence or at least conversations about violence so um we haven't really talked about joey much yet but joey mm-hmm. You know, there's there's hero worship uh, in you know with Shane and Joey's obsessed with guns. He's obsessed with fighting, mm-hmm. learning to shoot. There's this great scene where he 
very early on, he's talking to his dad and every question he asks um, him is about like, can you draw, can you pull a gun faster than Shane? Could you beat Shane in a fight? And it's like, it's like, this is the thing he's interested in. And his dad has the great line. Don't you ask anything but questions? <laughs> it's like, what else would you ask? Um, do you have, do you have thoughts on, on, on Joey and in terms of, especially his relationship to, guns and his interest in violence he's always like also like playing guns mm-hmm. and there's this haunting scene when starts getting ready to go into town oh, at the end of the movie and joey's running around with his little really well-made wooden gun that somebody carved for him and he's you know saying bang 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 and all you can think is if you're marion especially is like mm-hmm. this is too real for me yeah you know, I, I actually, I was thinking of the very, the very early, the very first scene in which Shane appears and Joey's behind him and he cocks the gun and Shane, you know, Shane, I mean, and you think, my gosh, you know, he could have, he could have shot the kid right, right, right then. So, yeah, I, I you know, and of course, Marion is the one who says, you know, that, um, you know, I, I wish there were, there were no guns in this, in this valley. And Shane has this kind of, um, I guess it's kind of a cliche argument, right? He says, you know, a gun is only as good as bad as the man, as the man using it. Um, get back to Joey, you know, he's really in, in many ways, he's the center of consciousness of the film, right? We are, we are constantly seeing Shane through Joey's eyes. And so, um, yeah, so yeah, he, it's, it's hero worship. Uh, I, I think especially of him, it's, it's such a great shot during that great barroom brawl. He's got that big peppermint stick. Right. And so you see plenty of the brawl itself, but you see a lot of the brawl in terms of its impact or it's a, it's a, it's effect on, on, on Joey. But I think what's significant with, with Joey and obviously he's struggling like any kid does with the idea that, you know, my dad, my dad's better than your dad. My dad could beat anybody up. But then, but then Shane comes into the, to the picture, and now Joey kind of has to struggle with this, right? But I think there's a kind of interesting turning point at, at, at the end when uh, Shane and, and Joe are having the predictable fight, right? We know, we, know, we know since Joey's been asking, can you whip Shane? We know we're going to have to have a fight where we can see if he can whip Shane. Uh, and, of course, he, can't, he, he can whip Shane, and Joey's very upset that Shane has used the gun to knock his dad out. Um, and so, so what's really great is you get to have Joey, you get to have Joey in a sense, both reject Shane, you know, I hate you. And then realize he doesn't, he doesn't hate Shane, but it's interesting to me that the turning point of that relationship, he's able to separate himself from Shane, at least temporarily when Shane uses the gun kind of in, in, in inappropriately. Um, so I don't know that that means that Joey has kind of been turned away from guns, but he has, he has seen what Shane does with the gun in order to eliminate threats. And then he sees that Shane, as a result of doing that, can no longer stay in that community. Uh, he says that that's, that's a brand. Uh, and, and once that brand is on you, you can't escape it. So one has to hope that what's kind of impressed on Joey is the idea that you really can't live your life according to this code of violence if you want to be part of a civilized society. So it's a kind of an irony, right, that the person who upholds civilization is the person who then can no longer stay in civilization because, because of that. And so like, and inter- inter- interesting enough, like Earp, uh, you know, he leaves town, uh, but unlike Earp, he's, he's not coming back because he can't. Yeah, I, I, I love the scenes of, of Joey. I mean, there's, there's multiple scenes of Joey watching Shane because he also gets to be there to watch the climactic fight, um, gunfight. But, but watching him with the peppermint stick also, I mean, it seems like potentially, I don't know how, how Stevens feels about 
you know, movies which glorify violence. Um, but it seems like that is also a stand-in for the audience. I mean, it looks so much like when you see in a movie a shot of someone watching a movie, kind of yeah. wide-eyed taking it in. And it's like, that has to be a mirror on, you know, kids mm-hmm. in 1953 who are going to see Westerns and like, like, like have this kind of ideal about the Western hero. And, 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 you know, so, so like you're getting this, this, this mirror and then, you know, we're going to see that there's compromises that have to be made with that. And that that's a, a more complex thing than just kind of white hats and black hats. So I actually really thought Joey functions. I feel like so much of this movie depends on that character working. Um, and, and I feel like, like he, he really, really does. And, and a lot of it is, I think the nonverbals even with maybe even more so than the things that he says. And he does save Shane's life. I mean, if he had had, if he hadn't yelled out, then Shane would, would have been killed. So he's an important plot element as well. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Uh, so the, the, the thing that Shane says to Marion, when she, you know, talks about, uh, well, one of the things Marion says is guns aren't going to be my boy's life. When, when mm. Shane starts teaching her or teaching him to, to use a gun, um, and then Shane's response before he says the thing about it's only as good or as bad as the person shooting it. He says a gun is a tool, no worse, no better uh, than any other tool, an axe or a shovel, which are, you know, kind of the tools of Joe, right? Joe, sure. you know, we see him with that axe and that stump. <laughs> um, that's the first thing we see him doing. The, I mean, they're, they're called sod busters. Literally the, the right. shovel is the thing which, which breaks up the ground and prepares it. So, um, so he's trying to make this case there, even though, uh, I don't know that he really, I don't know if he really thinks that by the end, you know, because, because it's like the, the difference between a shovel and a gun is, is he sort of says at the end is like, once you start using the gun, like you, you can't go back from it. You know, it, it leaves its mark on you maybe in a way another tool doesn't. Yeah. I think that speech is as much to convince himself as it is to convince Marion. Um, cause don't forget, you know, when he first arrives in town and settles down with the steroids, he takes the gun off. And his first response to violence in the bar is non-aggression. He doesn't, he doesn't react. So, you know, he seems to be a man who is trying to leave the gunslinging life, um, but for a number of reasons is, is, is unable to. So I think, I think he has to convince himself of what he's telling Marion in order that he, in order that he use his gun uh, in a way that he feels is, def- is defensible. Oh, I love that you used that turn of phrase because this is a movie about people saying things to themselves, saying things to somebody else, but really saying it to themselves. So let's talk about love in this movie because that's another that's another big big theme. Um, uh, Marion Marion has this the, this moment where where um, she's talking to to Joey. Uh, and, and she says, uh, don't go liking Shane too much. He'll move on one day. You'll be upset if you get, uh, if you get to liking him too much. And that is so (laughs) clearly what she is saying to herself. Um, she's saying it to Joey, but, but like, I, I have criticized movies. We've talked that we've watched sometimes in here where it's like the movie wants me to think these two, there is this like attraction between these two people, but they're telling me, but I'm not feeling it. I felt it in this one. Like, (laughs) like, like, I feel like that is that is so well done and it, it never, I mean, it never obviously comes to fruition, but the, the tension, the, the tension in that triangle of Joe, Shane and Marion is, is great because it's this like um, benevolent tension, right? It's not, it, it feels like, it feels like it, it's the least dark love triangle you could have, um, yeah. which is kind of masterfully done. 
It is, it is. And, and, and it's really fantastic how it sets up the climax of the film because, you know, you have the scene of the dance and Shane and Marion dancing, and then you get Joe watching. And Joe, if he hasn't had suspicions uh, to that point, he they're confirmed at that. They're confirmed at that. And, and I remember watching and thinking, oh, no, is there, is there going to be a confrontation? Is there going to be a break between Joe and, and Shane? And, you know, Shane doesn't make any kind of aggressive moves towards Marion. So Joe kind of backs off. But then, of course, later on, when they have the argument about him going to town to confront Riker, and there's almost this... Um, it's almost a suicidal sense about what Joe's about to do because he figures out so you know I go off and get killed and now she now she can be with Shane. So it I mean ultimate ultimately you could argue, and I'm I'm gonna argue this, that the fight between Shane and Joe at the end is not just a fight about who gets to go to town, it's a fight of fight, it's a fight about who gets Marion. Mm-hmm. Uh and, and Shane And the loser gets married. <laughs> and the loser gets Marion, right? And and Shane knows it can't. It can't end that way. He can't get Marion. Joe can't get killed. Uh, as much as he might want Marion, he's not going. He's not going to get her. Get her that way. So I, I think it's. I, I think it is very. Uh, it's. It's to me. It's a great example of how um, a movie that a movie can really make you think at many different levels, even if you're not quite aware that it's go, that it's going on. But if you look at this with a critical eye, you can see a lot below the surface. Well, and 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 there's this this. Uh great moment um i think it is i'm trying to i'm trying to piece together when all these things happen in the movie but it's after the big bar fight um uh and they're back at the house and marion is kind of patching them up and definitely doing a lot more with shane than she is with joe at this point now you could argue maybe she's already patched up joe and mm-hmm. she's to shane, but she's definitely like like very much um with with him at this point and i think this is when uh, Joey goes or Marion goes into tuck in Joey. And that's where Joey says, you know, I love Shane almost mm-hmm. as much as pop. Mm-hmm. And then she comes out and Shane, ha- Shane has upon hearing this through the door has left. And she kind of looks out longingly towards where he is. And when Joe comes out, she walks up to him and says, um, says, don't say anything. Just hold me tight. And it's just like, oh, yeah. don't say anything. Cause, cause then I'll know it's Joe, but in the dark, it could be Shane, <laughs> you know, like, and it's like, <laughs> it's like, wow, that it's wow. Yeah. It's, yeah. 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 It's just like, wow. That, I mean, like, like that's just really, really well done. And again, you manage to do this and still love and respect all of these characters, even though there is this, 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 you know, this, this kind of triangle there. Mm. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I didn't, I didn't know that was going to be part of this movie, but I thought that I thought that stuff was really effective. And it, then it, like you said, it puts in meaning to um, to going, you know, going into town. One thing I want to say, I, I want to backtrack to violence for a second, because another thing that I was uh, impressed with in this movie, we get the gunfights, but we get a we get two big, you know, basically, you know, hand to hand battles or, you know, people just fighting. And uh, if I think about uh, like the Oxbow incident and a couple of these, there's a lot of one punch knockouts that happen or John Wayne smacks somebody with the gun and they're just out. And Stevens is good. He goes out of his way to be like, that's not how these things work. Like, <laughs> like those scenes go on forever and they're hard to watch. They're they're. I mean, they're, they're these kind of like cool action set pieces with all this stuff going on choreographed, but they're also like, you're just watching people just batter each other. And then, 
so so you see it once sort of with the good guys and the bad guys and then you get to the end and it's like wait these are my two heroes of the film you because you're joey at that point and you're watching your two father figures fight each other and it's just like this isn't right and and it goes on so much longer and the other i I noticed this only the second time i watched it you notice what's going on during the fight between joe and shane Oh, the animals are going crazy. They're going insane. Like the, okay. the, the cattle are trying to jump over the fences. Yep. To, the world is being torn apart. And I wonder, like, is that actually happening? Or is that Joey? Like, is that Joey's life is literally crumbling around him? Well, you know, it's, uh, it, it's actually a Shakespearean trope. Um, in, in, in Macbeth, when the, when the king is murdered, uh, there are reports of uh, animals behaving very strangely. So it's like this is a disruption in the natural order. So this is a disruption in the domestic in the domestic order, and that's how the how the animals are responding the way they do. I think I think it's I think it's a brilliant touch that the world is falling apart when these two guys that are, I mean, these two guys who had not only are they both involved in the two big fights, but there's a wonderful moment in the bar fight when it's like they're bonding, right? They look at each other like, oh, this is so much fun. Let's just keep pummeling these bad guys. So, you know, so fighting has been their way of being uh, united, not being divided. So that's one more reason why, you know, not only they're not supposed to be fighting like this on the farm, but and also the other interesting thing about the fight is, and Roger Ebert noted this, for some reason, that stump that they supposedly had defeated together is still standing there. And so that stump, of course, becomes a very important prop at the climax of the fight. So mm-hmm. the stump that they had overcome together actually becomes the 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 uh, the climax of the of this of this fight. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, now that you say that, yes, absolutely. But that hadn't occurred to me as I, as I was watching it. Um, I have a couple other things I want to talk about, but I want to throw it over to you. Are there things you want to talk about with this movie? Yeah, I guess um, a couple things I want I want to say. One is um, I, I just wanted to point out that uh, Sam Peckinpah, who you know becomes known as kind of the the one of the early uh, creators of, of really violent uh, really violent f- films, you know whether westerns or other films that are you know, involving gunfire. Um, he says that when Jack Palance shoots Elijah Cook Jr. in Shane, that this is a turning point of violence in Western films, which is really interesting to me because we've seen a lot of gunfights, seen a lot of fist fights, but, but he really thinks that this, uh, that, that, that killing, I think what he's part of what he's getting at is, you know, we've seen cold blooded killings, but that one is particularly almost, it's particularly sadistic the way that that one plays out. So I think in that sense, it's a really, it's a really influential film. We've already alluded to the influence on films like Pale Rider, um, and and that the character of Shane, in a sense, kind of introduces the notion of this of this kind of mysterious, you know, high plains drifter sort of sort of character. The other thing I want to note is, and I'm not sure this has quite the same significance as in a film like My Darling Clementine or High Noon, but music does does play a, a pretty large role in this film. In fact, it opens with Marion singing uh, "I Was Seeing Nellie Home," which uh, I don't know anything anything about that film, but about that song. But that's kind of an interesting line, isn't it? Just just in the context of this film, and then you actually have um, the hymn "Abide with Me," which is played first of all very oddly at the end of the July Fourth dance, and then it's played again at Tori's funeral. Um, and the final thing I want to point out is that that graveyard is really an important symbol, right? Um, because at the end of the film, when Shane rides into town and Joey follows him, they they go through the graveyard. So it's one of the that reminder of the death that kind of hangs over uh, all the action. 
Well, the other piece of music you have is the uh, the one homesteader who plays harmonica and uses it as a way to kind of rib uh, rib Tori. And what I what I what I find interesting is you have. I mean, there is there is a homesteader called Yank, and there's a homesteader called Reb, and they're all like they they like there is this sense of like we can um we're going to rib each other about these things but at the same time like they're not at, at odds with each other so it also is 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 pointing to some like there's this legacy of this divide in the civil war but out west that feels a little bit different um you know that's that 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 that's something that they uh that are that they're that among them they're able to kind of joke about now when you get to um when he meets up with Wilson, when Tori meets up with Wilson, that's the that's the thing where he, where the the card that Wilson keeps playing to get Tori to draw is yeah, you know he he talks about Stonewall Jackson and um you know his uh, his love for the South and love for the uh, sovereign state of Alabama I think he calls it <laughs> um, the expert, yeah. yes um, uh, Jack Palance is just fantastic in this movie I mean it's very very small part but but I. I don't, I mean, I only know Palance from like city slickers. Like that's, that's kind of the Jack Palance that I know. And then like the Oscar performance and things like that. But, uh, but he is a great haunting character. I, there are some great stories about his um, inability to ride a horse. And so when I watched this a second time, there is clearly a scene where he dismounts a horse. And then later on in that scene, they play it backwards so he can mount the horse again. And if you know, it's there, it is so obviously the same shot played backwards and i love i love that that's how bad he was at mounting and dismounting that stevens eventually was just like we'll just fix it ourselves well by the time you get the city slickers he's obviously improved his horsemanship so uh yeah well then the other story of course is that alan ladd hated guns and i i didn't go back and watch this but supposedly in the shooting lesson you can see him close his eyes when he's when he's firing firing the gun, um, I also want to say, Sam, one more thing about the homesteaders, the Yankees, and the uh, and, and and the folks from the north, but also folks uh, immigrants. So the the homesteaders represent another one of those American ideals uh, of, of the melting pot, right? The notion that we can all we can all be united despite our very different different backgrounds. I also have to say just just a brief word about Tory, uh, the actor Elijah Cook Jr one of the great, great supporting actors in Hollywood. Um, most notably in a lot of films, noir, he was the last surviving member of their cast of Maltese Falcon. Uh, but anytime he shows up in a, in a movie, um, I'm, I'm happy to see him there. And then a fairly early role for Ben Johnson as Chris Calloway. And uh, another kind of pivotal part that we didn't talk about that's that, you know, he's the one that comes to Warren Shane and he's the one that kind of gets fed up with what Riker is, is, is doing. Yeah, I, I um, my my last closing thought is I want to uh, tip my hat to the uh, cinematographer Loyal Griggs who who won an Oscar for this. There are there's a lots of great shots in this, but there are two amazing pieces of filmmaking. One of them is at um, at Tori's funeral. There's this great like almost tableau across the sky. It's a panning shot, and you see everyone in silhouette. And it eventually goes down to the valley. Gorgeous shot. But my favorite shot of this movie is when uh, when Axel, the, the Swedish immigrant, is riding with Tori's body to star its place. And it starts with Start and Shane in foreground and Tori coming in the background. And start, start, um, uh, Shane and Start are, have their horses. And as Tori or as Axel comes up, they leave and it the shot stays static for a while on the horses as you see Starrett come up Starrett and Shane come up behind them so it's 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 just this like 
you would normally cut away and, and do a bunch of, but, but they stay on that shot for a long time. So you get this wide Vista, you get this view. You also get these horses in the foreground and there's this great moment where obviously the horse doesn't know he's doing this, but the <laughs> horse, one of the horses turns and stares down the barrel of the camera right at us. And it's kind of, it's just this great moment, but it's a gorgeous, it's a gorgeous shot. And I, I was amazed how long they stuck on that one shot. Mm. Um, and it, but it, cause it does give you this sense of space in a way. And I guess, if you're out shooting in a place like the grand Tetons like that, like yeah. keep it wide so we can, we can see it. Who needs, you don't need close-ups when you have that. So, so I have, I, yeah, I, I, I gotta say one more thing because two different critics, uh, Roger Ebert and Stephen Gray Danis both, uh, identified Shane as a kind of knight slash samurai archetype. Um, and I think that that's actually a great way of thinking about it. The great thing is a stern in battle model, mild with women and children siding with the wronged, honoring marriage. So he does have, he does have, so I think the idea is he does have some kind of code, which is not the typical gunslinger's code. He's not, he's not Wilson. Um, so I, I don't want to belabor this point, but it's like Shane, he has great respect for domesticity. He's not, He's not an anti-civilizing force the way Wilson is, but at the same time, he can't live within civilization. So I just just love the, the way that he's caught, caught between these worlds. And that as he rides off wounded, you can argue, and critics have argued, is he mortally wounded? Or, I mean, it, it actually reminds me of the end of No Country for Old Men, right? It's like, you know, what's, what's going to happen to that character? Uh, is he crawling off to die or will he live to fight another day i just like i love the fact that the film has such an open ending which is uh which also becomes kind of a western trope right a lot a lot more films with kind of wet open endings rather than wrapping everything up in a bow so in that sense the film is also kind of revolutionary yeah and and i love the way that his clothing is a is a depiction of that right that he comes mm -hmm. in in the buckskins and then yeah. one of the things, and actually it's Starrett who says, while you're in town, why don't you get some proper work clothes? And then, you know, so, so he, he, you know, and he even tells Joey at the end, he's like, I tried, like, I tried to, to, to not be what I am, but I am what I am. And yeah, like, I, I think that's, that is, is such a, such a powerful piece. Well, not, not only are they proper work clothes, but they're almost feminine. Mm -hmm. I mean, when he, when he puts those clothes on it, they almost feminize him. Actually, it's like, he's going to the whole, whole other extreme. Right. Well, and, and even the language that uh, that Rikers men use, there's a lot of like, like when he throws the whiskey on him, he says, well, now you'll smell like a man. You yeah, know, there yeah. is there is this this sense that he is stripping away his masculinity when he strips away his the tools of his trade. So what do you have for us for next week, Barrett? Well, um, I don't know if you remember the studio that released this film, Sam. Um, it was, it was Paramount. Studio, wasn't it? Paramount. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So 50 years ago. Paramount released another um, kind of small film that didn't get a lot of attention, but I think it's worth revisiting. Uh, and I thought about this film because I'm thinking, you know, there's a way you could look at the action in this film and say, well, it's almost like Riker and his men are kind of like a Western mafia uh, terrorizing the homesteaders. So this film that it just got re-released this, this month's called The Godfather. Um, listeners may have heard of it it's you know i don't think it's really gotten enough attention so i think maybe we should watch the godfather and just see if it's really worth you know revisiting <laughs> after all these i cannot i cannot wait i love the godfather this is going to be very fun um i uh 
I'm going to answer a question that nobody asked, but this is our Shane is our 93rd film. So we're getting close to 100. So I have started working on my ranking the hundred films that we've watched. Um, and I'm sort of slating these things in. So just as a, since, since we've finished our run of Westerns at this point in 93 films in, we've watched nine Westerns. Um, so here's my rankings from nine to, from nine to one. Only personal rankings. These are, you know, this does not, this is not express Barrett's views either. So number nine was is True Grit from 1969, um, which was probably it's among the movies that I was like, that's fine, but like not, I I didn't absolutely love everything else. I thought I really really liked number eight. I have Rio Bravo. Um, number seven, I have Treasure of Sierra Madre. Mostly because that doesn't feel like a Western to me as much, although mm. Letterbox says it is, so I put it in there. It'd probably be <laughs> higher if I was thinking of it differently. Uh, number six is My Darling Clementine. Number five is High Noon. Number four is The Oxbow Incident. Uh, that that movie is made for me. That's my kind of movie. Number three <laughs> is Shane. I really, really, really like this movie. Uh, number two is the 2010 True Grit. Uh, and number one is First Cow. I that we It's been a long time since we watched that, but that movie has stuck with me in ways that I uh, I just can't believe. So that's actually, uh, as you'll see when I, when my top 100 comes out, First Cow is uh, is placed pretty high on that list. Well, Sam, that really surprises me. I'm really pleased. That's great to know. <laughs> yeah. So, so I have I have I've actually when I realized about 10 percent of the movies we watched have been westerns. Like I, it turns out I think I like westerns. <laughs> Because of the ones we watched, you know, of the nine, eight, I can definitively say like, those are really good movies, you know? Yeah. So, so that's, you, you've, uh, you've accomplished, if nothing else, you've accomplished that. Oh, I, I, I got, now we got to figure out another genre we're going to work on. Maybe, <laughs> that's uh, right. maybe, maybe, maybe the Godfather will kick off some gangster films. I think there you uh, go. that might be a good idea. So. There you go. <laughs> well, Barrett, uh, thank you so much for recommending this film. Uh, this is one that, uh, that, like I said, that will stay with me as well. Um, that is all the time that we have, but we will be back next week to talk about the Godfather in the videos. Here.